Man, what a miniseries. That's a, a vague sentiment. Yeah. Man, that's issue one has so many covers. We're gonna talk about comics from Devil's Jew. It's something you wondered if Talking Joe would ever do. I guess we'll explain it all to you. Gonna take some time to read the books we've never read. Oh, oh. Hey, hey, hey. The devil went down to the south coast of England, because here I am. It's me, Mark, who's not in Georgia. Uh, welcome to Talking Joe, the best and longest running dedicated G.I. Joe comics podcast. If you're new to the show, you can find out all of the details over at the website, which is talkingjoe.co.uk. Today, we will be continuing our look at the disavowed era with G.I. Joe versus the Transformers, Volume 2, Issues 1 to 4 from Devil's Due, back in September to December 2004. Now, without any further ado, let me introduce my co-host, it's the ravage to my sound wave. It's Tim Finn. <laughs> uh, hello, Mark, and hello, listeners. I thought you were going to say, "Hey, hey, hey, listen, uh, hey, hey, hey." It's me, Mark. The devil and the devil went to Cybertron and then back in time. <laughs> that would have been better. Um, so, uh, yeah, we're talking about GI Joe versus Transformers. We talked about the the previous one a little while ago. Now. Because that came out, when did it come out? All the way back in uh, 2003. So so this is kind of like a, a year on in terms of publishing timeline. And and Jay Cordray was with us on that episode, right? Yep. Hi, mm-hmm. Jay. And, and hello, Jay, in the past, when the three of us recorded that episode. Mm-hmm. The, devil, the devil went Cybertron and sent Jay into the future, where he would be listening to this episode. Yeah, I think this whole uh, this whole time travel thing has uh, really got it, got into uh, your brain box. Let's talk about who created the comic that we're going to be talking about. So the story is from Dan Jolly. Um, and actually, while I'm talking about Dan Jolly, let's pause there and see what Dan Jolly had to say about the creation of this book when we spoke to him last. Um, well, there's, there's a, a funny story to do with uh, with GI Joe versus Transformers Part Two, <laughs> which that's something that like if you're talking to like Hollywood executives, um, mentioning that you've worked on something like that, uh, that tends to come across as a little bit of a punchline, you know, because it sounds like such a um, uh, a manufactured product. You know, it, it sounds like something done to fulfill some sort of contractual obligation. G.I. <laughs> <laughs> Joe versus the Transformers Part 2. Um, but, I mean, I had a lot of fun with it. And Josh asked me for a pitch. And I said, okay, how about this? Um, the G.I. Joe team has to go to uh, Cybertron. Um, and... Because everything on Cybertron is is uh, you know robotic. There's nothing. There aren't any um, living beings there as we understand them, or at least not any intelligent ones. 
the the GI Joe team has to uh, abandon all of their equipment and go in with just like the clothes on their backs and infiltrate because none of the none of the sensors or surveillance systems would be calibrated to pick up organic life forms. So it would be like this uh, this infiltration story uh, with the with the Joes overcoming all of this potentially horrible, um, terrifying Cybertronian stuff uh, using nothing but their wits. And I, and I wanted to call it Blind Spot. And Blaylock said, mm, nah. <laughs> nah. It's, uh, it's kind of boring. What else you got? And uh, I, it... <laughs> kind of harkened back to the uh, to, to what I have been given to understand was the origin of the Dreadnoughts when you know Larry Hama had them had this uh, basically evil outlaw biker gang smoking cigars and drinking whiskey and and Hasbro was like no you can't you can't show people smoking and drinking and he was like but they're the bad guys and Hasbro said yeah but it sets a bad example for the kids and he was like but they're the bad guys <laughs> and and Hasbro said no you, you can't do it and, and and Hama was like oh fine 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 they drink grape soda and eat jelly donuts how about that and Hasbro said oh yeah that's good <laughs> um, so you know it it I it irked me a little bit that the Josh really didn't like my pitch and and I said Okay, fine, fine. How about um, there's a big battle and um, Teletran 1 gets hit with a laser blast and it, it malfunctions and it starts zapping the Joes into different time periods. And Josh said, oh yeah, that's good, do that. <laughs> <laughs> So now you have, have to write this thing. So we have time travel. <laughs> but it but it was a lot of fun doing that. I got to put the put the different characters in, you know, some some cool situations. And uh and I I honestly don't remember which one it was in. It was the first miniseries or the second. But at one point Snake Eyes jumps onto Starscream's face and slices open his eyeball with his katana and shoves a grenade inside it and then backflips off him and Starscream, the, the grenade blows up and knocks him off a cliff. And I was like, that is exactly what I wanted to see in the cartoon growing up. <laughs> um, so as far as action choreography, that's a high point for me. Okay, so listeners, yes, you did just hear a rerun excerpt from a previous Talking Joe episode. So if you remembered that, we thank you for your patience and slogging through it again. And if you didn't, you're in good company because Mark reminded me that we had asked Dan Jolly about this miniseries when we had him on the show, and I had forgotten. So I do appreciate that refresher. Yeah, you actually tried your best, Tim, at the time to not to, to ask him not to talk about it too much. You were like, no, we've not read up to that bit yet. <laughs> also, I'm sure, you know, it's like, we'll do a second episode. We'll 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 pick your brain for two hours about this one miniseries in the future. In the future. <laughs> uh, so it's, uh, Dan Jolly went to Cybertron and Teletran 3 sent him to the future where we could do another interview on Talking Joe. All right. So Dan Jolly wrote it. Uh, can you continue with the credits? So pencils are from issue one, two, and four, Tim Seeley and EJ Sue, 
with Tim Seeley layouts on issue three and Emiliano Santa Lucia and Guido Guidi pencils for that issue. And it's, yeah, an interesting division of labor here. For, so so maybe, again, let's interrupt the cre- the creative team credits and, and sort of linger on the, the split here, because I don't know, Tim, if you're aware of this, but there was a book that came out called G.I. Joe versus Transformers 2 Special Preview 2004 Convention Exclusive. I did not know that. And in this book... Uh, they showed a little bit of a behind the scenes of the the creative process, including some designs, uh, some interviews and sort of quotes from the creative team. Can I jump in and guess here? Go on. Yeah. OK, because I have a pretty good eye for comics artists, uh, for styles. And when I read issue one, I thought, OK, after this, E.J. Sue went on to draw many excellent Transformers issues for hmm. IDW. And, of course, Tim Seeley had already been penciling and would pencil other G.I. Joe comics for Devil's Due. So I thought, okay, I think I think uh, Seeley is drawing all the people and E.J. Sue is drawing all the Transformers and maybe the vehicles. And then I thought, hmm, I wonder if Seeley is drawing all the people and not the backgrounds or layouts on the backgrounds. And E.J. Sue is penciling the backgrounds. And I wasn't sure... I did, I did think from looking at issues one and two that the uh, backgrounds were a little more interesting and the perspective was a little stronger uh, than in Tim Seeley's solo G.I. Joe issues. So that, so that did lead me to guess that E.J. Sue was, was doing the backgrounds. And then when I got to issue three, uh, I was sort of confused because Seeley is doing all the layouts. But then I was, I was certain that uh, one person, Santa was drawing the people, and another person, Guidi, was drawing the robots because I can definitely tell a Guido Guidi Transformer uh, because of all the Transformers that he's drawn. So then my question was, were these artists sharing the same Bristol, the same artboards, or was this a case of um, scanning and two artists working on different materials, and then someone photoshopping them together. So, uh, Mark, help me out here. So this is, I think, a quote from Josh Blaylock um, talking about the creative process. He said, then it hit us. Maybe the way to make this book more special as a sequel would be to make the process of creating the book unique. Wheels turning, we looked at our two mainstays. Tim Seeley, artist extraordinaire of G.I. Joe, and E.J. Sue, the man who brings the robot warrior Voltron to life each month. What if we had them collaborate on the project, letting them both play to their strengths? So a mad plan was unleashed. E.J. would lay out the story and pencil all the backgrounds and Transformers, showing off his skill for creating awesome-looking mecha, and Tim would draw all the G.I. Joe and Cobra characters, bringing the signature look that G.I. Joe fans all around the world knew and loved. And and I think in part as, as well, there's uh, a slight, uh, there's another dynamic going on, which is that Tim Seeley is at the same time as working on this book, also drawing the main G.I. Joe book. So, so probably not having quite the time to do both books fully. Um, so by splitting the, the labor, uh, it helps with that. And he also had someone come in on the, the G.I. Joe book to help him on background so he's got a bit of help on 
on both of the two books, sort of spreading himself uh, across the two. And and then seemingly by the time issue three of this new miniseries hits, E.J. Sue is either too busy with Voltron or sort of the book is running behind schedule because E.J. Sue is not involved in the third issue layouts or pencils. Mm. Yeah, they don't talk about that, but yeah, it must be the issue issue three was a crunch, uh, which meant that E.J. Sue wasn't uh, wasn't so involved in that. I asked E.J. Sue if he remembered why he didn't work on issue three. Hi, Mark. This is E.J. Thanks for having me to talk about Transformer versus G.I. Joe. I don't really exactly remember what happened with issue three. If I remember correctly, I think I was falling behind on issue number two. And in order for me to make schedule on issue number four, they will still have me skip number three and work on issues four uh, right after issue two. You know, that way we could work on three and four at the same time. And we could make sure the book will come out in time. But yeah, they talk about essentially that uh, so it, it sounds like from the description that they are working on absolutely the, the same board. E.J. Sue said that his biggest concern was that he had to, would have to draw the background before the G.I. Joe characters were on the page. Uh, plus, he wasn't so familiar with every Joe character, so was concerned about leaving too much room or not enough room for the Joe characters. Since he wasn't working in the so- same location as Tim, once the pages were out of his hands, he wouldn't be able to make any t- changes. And uh, so the easiest solution was to draw more background than was absolutely necessary. And so if Tim needed more room for his G.I. Joe figures, he could just erase a little bit of background to make it fit. They had a visit together where E.J. visited Tim in Chicago, where Devil's Due was based, uh, to, to sort of get on the same page but it sounded like probably mostly just a drunken night out uh, and and so yeah it's it sounds like absolutely that's uh kind of that very collaborative process the the ej uh, doing the the first pass and all of the the transformers tim seeley then filling out the the gi joe figures on the page and then passing it across to Inca, Andrew Pepoy to add finishing touches and bring it all together for colour. And here's EJ himself describing that process to me. The project was from so long ago, some of my memory maybe may not be exactly correct. So excuse me if I got anything wrong. When we start working on Transformer vs. G.I. Joe, Devil still flew me to Chicago where their office was to meet with them so we can work out a more smooth way to collaborate. What we ended up doing was I would initialize the page layout and work on the pencil. And since Tim will draw the human or the G.I. Joe characters, I would draw everything from the background, robot, cars, and uh, whatever the prop that's in the scene. When I get to the humans, I would draw these humans in very rough stick figures for Tim to fill out when I mail them the pages. I'm sure it was more of a challenge for Tim than for me, since he would from time to time having to redraw some of the panels to fit in with more what the editorial would want or 
how, um, you know, maybe sometime Hasbro would have some kind of, uh, uh, change to the comic pages. You know, Tim would redraw some of the panels to make it fit. This is not the first time that EJ Sue had drawn Transformers. Um, he had uh, a couple pinups published in a book called Genesis, The Art of Transformers, which is a, a book of a hardcover book of fan art that was published in 2003 by this uh, sort of studio called 88 Miles Per Hour and also Image Comics. And it was going to be uh, like an art book of official Transformers art. And then it sort of just became this hardcover uh, fan art book that Image did. And EJ Sue is in there. And that predates this crossover. It's also worth noting that this isn't the only time that EJ Sue works on Transformers because, of course, he goes on to be the lead artist for Transformers Infiltration when IDW take on the license and launch their own continuity in 2005. I asked EJ whether he thought that working on the Transformers for Devil's Due might have helped that process. I'm not sure if my work on Transformer versus G.I. Joe has anything to do with me working on IDW's Transformer. I would think so. At the time, I was also working on a lot of uh, uh, Hasbro internal toy illustration, and as well as some of my illustration on Transformer Genesis. I think IDW seen some of those work. When IDW, Chris Ryle, the uh, editor-in-chief emailed me if I want to draw Transformer comics. I was just too surprised to ask any any questions. I was afraid if I asked more questions, they would change their mind. I just happily accept the offer and, you know, hope, hoping to do a good enough job to live up to the expectation of the Transformer fans. Okay, so... Um... Uh, to continue with the credits, uh, issue three has an additional inker besides Andrew Pepoy. That's Sean Parsons. Uh, fun trivia. Yesterday when I read issue three uh, and I thought, Sean Parsons, where have I seen that name before? Yesterday morning, I read the new issue of Legion of X uh, penciled by Nitho Diaz, inked by Sean Parsons. Okay. Oh, all comes back to Joe. Uh, <laughs> right. 15 years later. And then Colors... Uh, on this book are by Jeremy Roberts. And I'm just going to jump ahead uh, a moment here since we're talking about process. The backgrounds on this book are digitally painted over penciled backgrounds. And so they look like animation backgrounds. They look like paintings. There aren't black lines for the edges of buildings or windows. It's just, you know, one color hitting another color with a lot of value. And so two things. One, this looks more like animation. And two, this is how Dreamwave was drawing its Transformers comics at the time. Someone was penciling the characters and the backgrounds, or in some cases, someone was taking credit for penciling <laughs> the characters and someone else was penciling the characters and someone else was penciling the backgrounds. And then someone would ink the characters and then the color artist colored the characters and digitally painted the backgrounds. So, so this, 
even though this is not a Dreamwave book and Dreamwave was doing its own G.I. Joe and Transformers crossovers with its own deal uh, with Hasbro and like not approval from Devils Do, whether on purpose, I'm guessing yes, or by coincidence, this book uh, does look like the Dreamwave Transformers comics of the of the day. Uh-huh. Uh, and then lastly, this is where you would say uh, lettering by Dreamer Design, editor Mark Powers. Uh, you, you take those. You take those last three. And and colors on uh, issue four were Val Staples, in addition to Jeremy Roberts on the previous three issues. Letters Robin Spear, Dreamer Designed, and editor Mark Powers. Graphic design by Mike Norton and military consultation by Andrew Swenson fitting in there, interestingly enough. But I guess, yeah, Dan Jolly and uh, and Brandon Jerwa were, were, were sort of friendly. So possibly there was a recommendation from Brandon Jerwa to Dan Jolly to make use of Andrew Swenson as a bit of a um, sounding board slash G.I. Joe uh, expert. Let's have a look at the covers in the gallery. Normally at this point we would talk about covers. There are an awful lot of covers. I don't know if you totted up the total. Uh, I can see 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, um, 19, total, 19 total, I think, that you know would be possible to talk about. So maybe uh, hone in on a couple sure. of your favourites. Uh, yeah, covers 1A and 1B are, uh, they don't, they don't technically connect, but they are, are meant to match where, mm-hmm. uh, they are Tim C- uh, EJ Sue and Tim Seeley, uh, on the A cover, there's, uh, a Joe in front of two, uh, Transformers. One is sort of the Snake Eyes and one's Optimus Prime, uh, and Hawk has a, an American flag. And then on the B cover, similarly, Cobra Commander is in front of, it's supposed to be Starscream, but, uh, <laughs> To me, if I see a dark gray or medium gray uh, secret jet, I'm going to think it's Skywarp because Starscream isn't just white. He's also red and blue. But anyway, and then there's uh, the uh, Storm Shadow sort of samurai transformer robot. The, these two covers, particularly the B cover, you know, I, I, I grumble a lot on this podcast about um, over rendering and over coloring and too many light sources and unmotivated uh, rendering. And this one's a really good example. Uh, cover 1B, where Cobra Commander and Starscream sort of do become one blob. And to some extent, so too does uh, Storm Shadow. The rendering on each of these three characters individually is nice or interesting, but it's way too busy. And Cobra Commander's cloth is rendered pretty similarly to this shiny metal on these robots behind him. Uh, all right, so Covers 1A and 1B, fun ideas, uh, nice compositions, but um, overdone. And uh, I wanted to zero in for a moment on the cover to 2B, which has the Baroness in the front, uh, looking very cool and attitude and then two people behind her. Can't quite tell who. Uh, is it Stalker? I think I see a black guy with a, a beret, but he's got no mustache. And then a white guy with a hat. That's sort of shading his face. So I'm going to say snake eyes, question mark. Behind them are two stunticons. I love the stunticons. I like that artist Adam Polina here drew them with really narrow heads because the original 1985 toys had tiny, narrow heads. This cover is a bit of a, not a cheat, but an exaggeration because these are their normal earth forms. And we 
only see them in the story in time appropriate car modes. It's also exciting when G.I. Joe or Transformers sort of can grab a hot or kind of hot Marvel artist to do a cover. I don't think Adam Polina was under any exclusive to Marvel in 2004. Um, and uh, his his style is, his characters are like a little skinny, very tall. You know, it's sort of in that um, Egon Shiel, Peter Chung mode. Uh, Adam Polina's characters are like tall and like attenuated and skinny. And uh, so it's cool to see an attitude-y Baroness uh, hear from him. The real winner though, uh, for all the covers um, for this, the real winner is <laughs> 4B. Cover 4B is penciled by uh, Clement Sauve or Clement Sauve, who we've talked about a little bit before on this podcast. He passed away young a few years ago and he was character designer for uh, G.I. Joe Renegades. And he did a little comics work for Devil's Do. He worked on the start of uh, one of their aftermath sort of superhero universe uh, books called uh, Infantry. And there is, in fact, an ad for Infantry in this very comic book, G.I. Joe versus Transformers 2, issue number four. This cover, man, um, I apologize that I don't know how to say Sav's, Sav's last name, but he is such a great artist. His anatomy and his composition and his sense of design, this cover where Roadblock has a particular facial type and Lady J has a particular expression and that's not an easy angle to draw her at because we're looking slightly up at her face. I appreciate that he's not giving her this bare midriff that she's got Mm -hmm. on the inside of the book, which is sexy and dumb. He draws gear convincingly, but it doesn't distract. You know, there are artists who like to cover characters with pouches and straps and pockets. And sometimes those artists can't pull it off. And this looks detailed and exciting, but like just part of what they're wearing. Roadblock is holding on to this sort of piece of rebar that's sticking out of some blocky thing. And elsewhere on the cover, just to the right of Snake Eyes' visor, there are three more of these rectangles with pieces of rebar sticking out of them. John Roche, uh, as color artist, separates these three planes where the three Joes in the foreground have a red light on them, and he handles it really nicely. And then Shockwave in the background, he's lit from the side with light blue, but the background behind him has some atmospheric perspective on it. The buildings behind him in the sky has a little bit of uh, yellow haze over it. But the, the sense of danger and excitement, the sense of tension and worry that these Joes are in trouble. Uh, Notice how they don't, they're not holding weapons here. Snake Eyes doesn't have his sword drawn. And whatever these three Joes need to do, sneak past Shockwave, sneak up to his feet, run the other way, this, this evil sentry in the background can't see them, but he almost can. This is, this is an excellent cover. This is so well composed, so well penciled, so well inked, uh, Serge Lapointe, and uh, so well colored. Uh, I I didn't love this final issue, and I didn't love this miniseries, but man, this cover, uh, I don't want to say like almost <laughs> makes it worth it, but this cover is a is a keeper. And uh, oof, it's oh, so good. 
<laughs> Do you know what my note for the covers uh, was, Tim? No. My note was, I don't really want to talk about any of the covers, but man, 4B is beautiful. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, Why did you not really want to talk? Just because there are too many and I would talk for there, 30 minutes? Well, there's, there's so many. And apart from this one, uh, they didn't especially sort of strike me as being you know, really gripping. Um, right. You know, it was interest. It was interesting, for example, that, that one of the covers for issue one is sort of in a 70s style and issue two is uh, cover A is, is in a kind of an art deco style, uh, you know, and and I think 3B is quite interesting as as well. But but yeah, this this is the highlight. This is the one that, that jumps out. And, and probably when we're looking at Devil's Due as an era, there's a, there's a few covers that really you'd put in a top ten, and I think this would be one of them. I think another another one perhaps might be um, Dreadnoughts Declassified, also mm. by uh, mm-hmm. Clement Suave as well. I I haven't really bought original arts in a long time. Uh, I only own one thing from the entire Devil's Due uh, era, and there's not a lot that I would jump at. And when I sort of sat down to look at four B, uh, I thought. Oh man, this one, you know, but then I, I wouldn't get the gorgeous, gorgeous color, but yeah. just as a black and white piece. Uh, oh man, what a, what a great, what a great cover. <laughs> um, okay. So um, I am going to come back to one of the covers when we get to the story, because one of the covers uh, that we haven't talked about really throws me for a loop. I, and I, and I want to say one last thing about all the covers. Um, there is a, there's a, there's a little bit of weird graphic design logo massaging happening um in the word transformers the second letter of the second half the the o right the letter after f Mm -hmm. the transformer the 80s classic generation one transformers logo type has a thick black outline around all the letters and for some reason here uh devil's do's designers have not included the thick black outline on the inside of the o and that that sticks out to me that that line is is thin okay let's talk about the inside of the book uh so plot breakdown time a MacGuffin called teltran 3 teleports a team of cobras and joes to cybertron and at the same time zaps various transformers to different points in earth's history where they have been locked into a vehicle from that time period this time stream disruption will destroy the earth unless the Joes and Cobras work together to return the teleported Transformers back to Cybertron using special tracker devices and disruption units. The various teams go on their missions. Zartan, Lady J, Snake Eyes and Storm Shadow are sent back to Earth in the 1970s where they retrieve Jazz, Bumblebee, Hot Rod and Sweeps. Beachhead, Roblox, Baroness, and a Viper are back to 1930s Chicago to retrieve Optimus Prime and the Stunticons. Barbecue, Spirit, Tomax, Zamot, and Dr. Mindbender are in a dystopian future Earth where Ratchet is the one remaining Autobot warrior. Returning back to Cybertron, Shockwave has now captured many of the Joes and Autobots and closed the wormhole, stopping the return of the last remaining team. However, Lady J and Roblox strip down to their underoos to escape the Cybertronian metal detectors and are able to reactivate the wormhole, allowing the final team of Dusty, Gung-Ho, Shipwreck 
and the Dinobots to return and defeat Shockwave. The Earth is saved and the Joes and Cobras return back home. Later, Dr. Mindbender is ushered to a mysterious facility where he meets Cobra La, who have a room full of Unicron relics. Dun dun dun, to be continued, or not, possibly. And going back to sentences, and and with Lady J and Roadblock uh, stripping down to their skivvies, Dan Jolly gets to incorporate one scene from his original blind spot pitch. Absolutely. Um... Uh, top down your your reaction mark so i'll i'll have a bit of a top down and a and to say something nice at the same time i don't have the same attachment to transformers that that you do tim i know you love both of the properties i was always uh you know fond of the transformers uh because of the, the era that they're from and my best friend growing up uh loved transformers uh gi joe was published in the UK in the back of the Transformers comic for a while. So I had a lot of exposure to Transformers, but it, it never really particularly gelled with me. It didn't connect anywhere in the same way that, it, that the G.I. Joe property did. So I think generally uh, a Transformers comic is a bit more of a hard sell for me. So there's a slight uphill battle there. You're not, you're not going to sort of just wow me by saying, look, it's the G.I. Joes and the Transformers together. I'm not going to go, wow. I'll probably just go, well, you know, that means you've got half as much G.I. Joe as you would have otherwise. So so, so it's it's not necessarily a, an easy pitch for, for me. But all of that said, you know, I, I give I give the uh, book a, a fair shake. And what I really liked about this book uh, was the was the look of it and particularly the the colours and the animation style that, that you were talking about before, where uh, you had that sort of more detailed sort of almost painted background uh, without the black inks so that it looks like a, an animation background and in that in that preview um, interview with Tim Seeley he, he talked about what the influence was for the book and he said that he was trying to treat it like it was the original two cartoons crossing over trying to keep it close to the roots and the classic look look of the characters you know, so, for example, that you, you didn't have the Superman, Spider-Man crossover with where you've got Superman in his Superman blue electric costume and Scar- Spidey in a scarlet spider suit. You know, keep it, uh, keep it to the iconic look. And and yes, yeah, so you can tell kind of that from the character designs and stuff that they're sort of, you know, not being too slavish to any particular era or design. They're kind of going with what they enjoy, the the look of a lot of the iconic looks and like Cobra Commander, I think his look is sort of plucked from the the kind of re- reloaded look of Cobra Commander, where he's got that big black sort of leather trench coat, and Mindbender is is that sort of purple lab coat, Devil's Due look, which which is fairly effective. Uh, and and yeah, the the story zips along, uh, it's enjoyable, no complaints really, and and. That will be my, I guess, faint praise for it. <laughs> I have some complaints, but let me start with what I like about this. I like that because of a healthy explanation at the beginning of issue one, you don't have to have read the first crossover from Devil's mm-hmm. Two, or in my case, you don't have to have remembered it. <laughs> yeah. uh, when I sat down, I thought, oh, what do I need to know from the first one? And even though we did a whole episode about it, all I could sort of remember was my impression of reading the first issue when it came out. Like the first couple pages where, you know, Cobra Commander and Cobra find the crashed Ark. 
And then I thought, where did that end up? But fortunately, the first page of this new crossover catches me up. Number two, I really love the approach to the art. It doesn't always quite work, but it's much harder to split up the art chores this way, particularly if you have a penciler for one set of characters and another penciler and an inker, right? It would be easier if, you know, one penciler did some of the work and then the other penciler finished penciling it and inked it. And there aren't a lot of parallels uh, to this. What this reminds me of is 2009 Image United miniseries. Uh, and I and certainly G.I. Joe versus Transformers 2 came first. And certainly this is not the first time that an artist has penciled something and handed it to another artist who has penciled other things on the page. So, uh, you know, E.J. Sue and Tim Seeley didn't invent this and the image founders didn't reinvent this. Um, but there's this miniseries where um, the remaining image founders plus Robert Kirkman, who's now in effect an image founder, we're going to write and draw and like, pass the the Bristol, the artboards back and forth so that, you know, like only Todd McFarlane was penciling Spawn on all the panels where Spawn showed up. And then he'd like pass the pages over and, you know, only Jim Valentino was going to pencil Shadowhawk where Shadowhawk is like punching Spawn or getting punched by the Savage Dragon or whatever. So it's harder and slower. It's, it's really fun. Okay. So in terms of story, I certainly remember that the main Devil's Due series is meant to be a a mix of the uh, animated series from the 80s and the Marvel continuity, right? Where you get things like extensive enterprises that were only in the cartoon. And with that in mind, as the story progresses over issue one, I realized, oh, Dan Jolly, whether he's meaning to or not, is writing this like a G.I. Joe five-part miniseries, where the character's break into teams, and go to different places to retrieve or do things, right? So in the first miniseries, they have to find the three fuels for the mass device. In the second miniseries, they have to find the pieces of the weather dominator. In the third one, they have to place or stop placement of the control cubes for the Pyramid of Darkness. In Arise, Serpent, or Arise, it's raiding tombs or stopping Cobra from raiding tombs, even in Operation Dragonfire, right? It's it's finding the Dragonfire. So this is really fun because that is a story structure that I understand and like. But having Joes and Cobras and Autobots and Decepticons, it's too crowded. And there are like two issues of this that don't work for me and two issues that mostly do. And sort of halfway and then 75% of the way and then 95% of the way through this, I thought... Did I miss an issue? Or like <laughs> or like is my copy missing pages? Cause I feel like we just made a jump or something hasn't been explained. And I want to point out that at the end of a previous episode, when Mark and I were figuring out what we would talk about in our next episode, Mark said, Master and Apprentice 2. And I said, No, 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 G.I. Joe Transformers 2. And he said, Okay. And I said, Are we gonna do it in one episode? And Mark said, Yes. And I said, All six issues? Because, you know, that's going to be a three-hour episode because I'm going to spend 40 minutes just talking about the covers. And <laughs> um, and I was remembering incorrectly this crossover is only four issues. But here's the thing I love. Issue one is double-sized. So uh-huh. it is it is in effect 
uh, five issues, right? The cover prices are two ninety five. Issue one is a four ninety five comic, and it's uh, forty or forty two pages long. So that's good. Uh, oh, and then okay, and then at the end of issue, th- uh, and then in issue three, right? Here's here's how confused I got. Um, I started to think because the story was being crunched uh, and truncated in such strange ways. I started to think, did Blaylock rewrite some of this for Dan Jolly? Did Blaylock halfway through tell Dan Jolly that he had to do something different, right? Because, you know, in recent episodes, we've talked about how Brandon Jura was, uh, the end of his run on the main book was, was shortened. So we had to change things and rush things and there were some issues earlier in his run where Blaylock is co-writer. And some of some of those feelings started to occur to me. At the end of issue three, on the Devil's Due news page, right? This is the page after the final page of comics. Uh, on the very bottom, it says upcoming books, right? And it lists two months, November, right? And November includes issue four. And then December, and December includes a comic book, G.I. Joe versus the Transformers Volume 2, issue number five. Now, that may just be a typo. Maybe there was never going to be an issue five, or maybe it was going to be five issues and they decided to pull them all forward and turn two and one into a double-sized one. But so this may just be an isolated typo on the like checklist page and have nothing to do with story or editing story. But we, we, we can and we'll get into it more specifically, but this, this overall sort of didn't work for me because it was too crowded and there were some either plot holes or things that were underexplained for me. Mm. Yeah, I suspect that, that because, you know, these things have to be solicited three months in advance and there weren't any solicits for number five, there would have been like preview covers and things that would have had to have been produced. I, th- I think that must surely be... A, uh, a typo when you were talking about like collaborative or, or other creators chiming in on the um on the plotting um it reminded me that there was a something that dan jolly had said again going back to the preview issue he said uh when talking about where to place each chapter of the book he said i tried to think of times and settings that would be a lot of fun to use in which we could get good reactions from the Joes and Cobras involved, and that would allow for some really entertaining action. I had all of the locales mapped out, but then Josh, uh, EJ, Tim and I sat down and started brainstorming, and Tim made a really, really good suggestion that strengthened the story considerably and totally trashed one of my settings. So I had to back up a little and work in a different direction. Damn you, Seely, and your good ideas. Um, it's it's a reminder, I guess, that Seely isn't just an artist, but is also a writer and is, in fact, nowadays more known for his writing than, than his art. I wonder which locale it was that, that was Seely's idea that wasn't on Dan Jolly's original mapping. And I actually asked Tim Seely that very question when we caught up with him. I don't know. I, I don't remember. Okay. I mean, I remember... The, so the cool thing about that one, and Dan is an awesome writer, and I mean one of the best I worked with. I remember he was really open to things is, that were visual ideas, you know, because he would just be like, I don't know, I gotta draw the, I gotta write the dialogue and come up with a plot. But if you got something cool to draw, just do it. So I don't remember what I don't I don't remember. I know we talked a lot about like if we're gonna do time travel stuff, we gotta do like a 
1930s gangster transformers and at the time none of that stuff you know that was the first time it had been done mm. and you know so i did i add the time travel the future one i did i added the let's go to the future and see the that's right okay there we go i thought it might be yeah that future one is a bit of a horror element yeah that that might be the one but dan is a horror writer so yeah. uh, but I, yeah i'm pretty sure wasn't it that we were gonna have they were using making energon out of people i think that might have been what we i don't remember <laughs> it was a long time ago but i remember we threw around some weird ass ideas that like the transformers were eating people uh like turning them into like draining their blood and turning them into energon and stuff i think i don't remember I want to I want to say one other thing about breaking this down into sort of chapters or or phases. So, issue one is double sized. The first two thirds of it are about getting the Joes and Cobras to Cybertron, having Teletran overload, zapping characters, and then them deciding what to do about it. And then the first sort of mission, right? So you could sort of. Um, you know, if this is like Revenge of Cobra Part 1 or The Weather Dominator Part 1, I don't actually remember where in Part 1 the Weather Dominator flies up into space and breaks into three parts, and then they say they have to break off into teams and go find it. But if you've got the, you know, if you've got the Weather Dominator, it's got three pieces, right? If you have a five-parter, this might suggest a story structure like, okay, Destro is using the weather dominator in part one. It breaks into pieces at the end of part one. So we now have one episode for each of the three parts, although we may like slide them forward and back a little bit to have overlapping stories. And then part five, it's going to get reassembled and there'll be a big fight for control of it, right? That's, that's one possibility. Okay, so issue one, the first sort of mission, the first uh, not just place, but time and place uh the 70s it's the final 10 pages and that scene felt rushed to me mm-hmm. yep uh okay lady j is inside jazz and they're convincing uh this red car with this human and the red car ends up being hot rod uh to chase them and they pull into this warehouse which turns out to be a hangar because it has a plane in it and there are, this is just a couple pages from the end of issue one. There are one, two, three, four, five humans who all have like long hair and mustaches and suspenders and, or I guess they're holsters and like white button up short sleeve shirts and ties. Yeah. Think um, Beastie Boys sabotage. Video. No, e- exactly. And I thought, who are these guys? It's not explained, right? Are these, <laughs> are, are these criminals are these like businessmen and it's a hot day and they're wearing short sleeves? Like none of them flash badges. Um, like, is this a chop shop? Are they like stealing cars? Are they like drug dealers? And this little plane, this private jet is for them to take drugs somewhere. Like they all have pistols. So, but I thought, I actually thought like, are the writer and artists of this series just hoping I recognize this reference to the Beastie Boys sabotage video it's, it's like it's like i'm sitting in a library and dan jolly and like tim seeley are like elbowing me like it's the 70s cops like <laughs> 70s cops sabotage right like oh okay so like yes it's fun but a it's not even under explained it's just not explained and b 
I sort of don't know what to do with it. Like, you know, one of them, one of them says, uh, all of you stop right there. And another one says, hands on your heads. And I think, okay, this sounds like law enforcement. Mm -hmm. And then after everyone disappears back to Cybertron, uh, there's this empty hangar with these five humans and some like little lightning wisps. And one of them says, how, uh, how do we report this? And I thought, to who? Who are you? Are you FBI? Are you CIA? Are you local PD? Are you like, is this like a cute Easter egg? Are you actually the three Beastie Boys and the other two guys who are in that video? <laughs> um, and it like, this needs this needs more thought. This needs more real estate. This needs uh, different dialogue. And so where issue one is already sort of too crowded for me as I'm reading it, because you have like Joe's fighting Cobras at the beginning. And then there's this there's this thing I don't quite understand where a couple pages in there's a red ninja hanging on the back of this like troop transport. And it's a female and her her head is like covered up and she has a sword and i thought oh that must be jinx uh-huh yep and then 3 pages later there's this giant like mech there's this giant mecha yeah. that's talking and it's sort of red and dark gray and it refers to the one next to it that's like black and dark gray it refers to the black and dark gray one as snake i swear snake you're having way too much fun with that thing and i thought is this Jinx? Because I see like a giant robot that's a person, not a transformer, I think. So I think that's Jinx because like the other one is Snake Eyes or like Snake Eyes is like pet robot. But like there's no panel where I see like Robert Downey Jr.'s face with a bunch of holograms in front of it. Like, oh, I'm inside Iron Man's helmet. <laughs> okay, I know that Tony Stark is piloting this Iron Man costume, whereas the, all the other Iron Man costumes flying around in this scene are empty drones. Oh, and that one is War Machine. Oh, Rhodey's in that one, right? So there's no, like, pilot cockpit shot of this. We're like, okay, that's definitely Jinx. And no one calls this character Jinx, or no one's like, JNX-01. Like, and then Jinx runs in with, like, a radio control. She's like, my my giant 50-foot robot did the mission. So, like, I don't know where these two robots came from. Yeah. Your your turn. I, I, I had the I had the almost exactly the same thought process. And Jinx, I don't know if it's just that one panel where he sees her on the back of the truck. Um, it Yeah, what struck me as being strange is that I don't think we see that character anywhere apart from that one panel because, uh, yeah. The, the character who's jumping through the glass is, is then spirit. And and then the mechas that you were talking about. So this is a kind of callback to the very end of series one, where sort of one of the, like the concluding scenes of that is that the shows, the GI Joes lined up in these mech suits using the kind of Cybertronian technology to have developed their own yeah mech suits. And one of those is snake eyes and that is the same design that we see here in the black one. So that's snakes. So, Again, so you know, my it's bad. Not, it's not my not really. My, yeah, it, my it's bad. a callback to a series that that you know in real time you wouldn't have read, you know, possibly a, a, until a year previously. So remembering that particular panel, you know, maybe a bit of a stretch. But um, the orange one, I think, is a, a brand new character that wasn't in that particular scene. 
What, what you're um, saying, orange I, is the one I was saying is red. Yeah. The, the one standing next to Snake Eyes. Yeah. Yeah. I'm seeing an orangey red. And I think that that is probably barbecue because of the sort of orangey color and because one of the characters who features relatively prominently in the rest of the series is barbecue. Oh, yeah. And you know what? The, uh, the, yeah, the, the eyes and the mouth look like barbecue's helmet. Mm hmm. Okay, so it. I mean, it. It definitely doesn't say anywhere that that's who he is. But <laughs> you know, there <laughs> there conclusion. are there are times when I read a Larry Hama GI Joe comic where I think, man, these characters sure are conspicuously lose using each other's names, Mark. Hmm. But then they I think, sure do, Tim. But then I think, you know, it's like the old Jim Shooter rule uh, at Marvel in the eighties that every com every comic is someone's first, and so fundamental things get re-explained every issue uh with my healing factor my razor sharp claws and my unbreakable <laughs> adamantium skeleton mark i'm the best there is at what i do even though what i do isn't very nice so i could use a little bit more conspicuous name dropping name calling naming um not even in this miniseries in this in this first issue so okay so then we get to cybertron can and I, can i hover over an idea as well so yeah 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 so you you mentioned as well that some of that that seventies scene is is a little bit strange or not fully explained. I wonder whether I wonder whether maybe this talking to your point earlier that maybe this might have been designed as being a slightly longer series, and they condensed some of it and some of that condensed condensation. Uh, I don't know if that works implies, but <laughs> or it just results in mo moisture. But anyway, that condensation. My mint comics. Uh, meant uh <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> it's warping um the uh resulted in in some of the, the confusion in this issue because it, it yeah it does feel like particularly that scene where they're in that hangar with the with the airplane and um though those um police or whatever they are it feels like there's something that maybe was in there originally that would have made it made more sense and and possibly that has just been um, chucked, you know, chopped back to to its core components to to get everything into the into the issue. Who knows? But um, that could be something. Okay, so um, so I wanted to make a, a comparison. So um, pages seventeen and eighteen of issue one. Tell me what's tell me what's on them. Oh, um, uh, this is where uh, the first. It's two pages facing each other. The Joes are in a truck, Boston. Seventeen hours later. And they are heading towards uh, a nondescript building, and there's some flashing lights inside it. And then the Joes head into this building, and this is where they find Cobra experimenting with this wormhole technology on Earth before they go to Cybertron. And uh, so the first page is this, this truck driving. There's a silent panel of the Joes with their weapons drawn sitting in the back of the truck and then in the driver's seats. Lady J and Stalker say, that's it, dead ahead. Huh, doesn't look too impressive. And then the first panel of the second page of this, page 18, three of the Joes are right outside. There's a chain link fence. Lady J says, move it on the double, every entrance, ready and they kick the doors open, go. And I thought, man, this is not a Larry Hama written scene. And I don't have a particular comparison at my fingertips, but I feel like, if you've read a lot of Marvel Hama G.I. Joe issues or IDW Hama G.I. Joe issues, there would be a different arrangement of 
dialogue and exposition for what these Joes who are about to infiltrate a building where they think the bad guys are doing something nefarious. Like there would be some jargon about like access points or like vectors of entry or it's like, well, we're going to have someone spotting with the sniper rifle up on the building across the so-and-so or like Alpha Team is coming in through the skylights and like Bravo Team is going in through the front door. But like Chuckles and the Awe Striker is going to be like parked at the back door. And again, I think whether he whether he intended to or not, Dan Jolly is basically writing two or three or four or five episodes of the cartoons mushed together. And that is a different style of writing dialogue. There's less jargon. And not every scene needs to be compared to Hama. And I'm not even saying this is bad. I just thought, oh, wow, this like sometimes I'm sort of looking for that specific. Like, how does this feel very different from many of the other G.I. Joe comics that I've read, and this one really jumped out at me. Like, the scene where they all get teleported through time as Teletran 3 zaps them with, like, magic lightning, I wasn't like, oh, yeah, Hama wrote a scene like that in Wolverine, where Wolverine travels back. To Actually, Hama did write a scene where, <laughs> where there's a time storm back in Wolverine 30, 31, 32, or thereabouts. Anyway, never mind. Um, <laughs> uh, okay, so, um, okay, and then there are two... There are two sort of story beats in issue one, which are also sort of underexplained or the the dialogue isn't linking to the visuals um, enough. So uh, those two pages I just referred to with the, the warehouse, that's 1718. If you turn your page to 19, Cobra Commander yells, Lady J fires. She's holding her pistol and she fires. And then mm-hmm. in the next panel... Uh, I, it's Starscream, although, again, he's colored like a dark, dark gray. So I'm yeah. like, Skywarp! Uh, and and Mindbender's screaming, right? No, stop, don't shoot. Okay. And then there's an explosion, and that's when they start to get zapped. So page 20, they're getting zapped. Turn the page 21. And Mindbender in the middle says, I'm saying that grenade caused an energy surge. And I thought, what grenade? Turn back to page 19. Okay, Lady J is definitely not holding an under and over, right? She's not holding Leathernecks machine gun. She doesn't have a bloop gun. She's got a pistol. Oh, there's a grenade in the middle panel just over Starscream. Oh, good grief. But it's very dark, and it's it sort of disappears in the like light and dark of the like background color, ceiling darkness, and the like the lights streaking off the like glowing sphere of the like cobra wormhole experiment and uh so i do see grenade but again in that panel mindbender he's saying he's saying what you'd say he's saying don't shoot he doesn't have to be so specific like don't shoot and or hurl grenades um but also in this panel and in the previous panel no one is actually throwing anything there's no like i just threw a thing baseball pitcher pose and so then i thought okay i guess lady j did have a grenade launcher that's like the size of a pistol after all. Like, I don't know. So that's one. It, it also doesn't seem like it's a very responsible thing to do is to be chucking a grenade into like a crowded room with a big electrical <laughs> doohickey in the middle of it. Yeah. So this is this is not a good uh, explanation. This is not a good no prize or rewrite. But if earlier when they're driving there in that truck one of them is like i'm a new joe i'm inexperienced i can't wait to blow some stuff up or someone's like i'm the new gi joe grenade trooper 
and my specialty <laughs> is throwing grenades. Or one of the Joes says, I'm so upset about what happened in the first crossover miniseries, even though I'm going to follow the parameters of the mission. I'm going to do maximum damage. And he's holding or she's holding a grenade. <laughs> like, I need I need something else. Uh, at minimum, I just need to see that grenade on page 19 because it completely disappears. And tiny. If you are reading this, if someone like scanned a printed comic book and you're reading this on your monitor, I bet you can't even see it at all. I feel like that's the kind of thing that just disappears in like the, the increased contrast of scanning glossy pages. Okay, and then this kind of thing sort of happens again where a couple pages later, so um, characters have been zapped and Perceptor shoots Starscream with his uh, lasso. And then there's uh, half of <laughs> there's a page of Perceptor and then Ultramagnus just explaining things, mm-hmm. right? Ah, uh, oh, Cobra Commander, I see Optimus Prime's use of the word. Oh, I should actually do my uh, my Perceptor voice. Ah, Cobra Commander, I see Optimus Prime's use of the word Imperius was an understatement. Um, sort of sounding like a beetle. I'm sorry. Um, so he keeps talking, and then Baroness says, what kind of feedback? And uh, and Perceptor explains the rules of the next three comic books, and I thought, oh, no. Yeah. And then Ultra Magnus continues to explain it, but also why like they're going to sort of hold off the fight in this room with Teletran 3. And then Tom X and Zaymot say something. Okay, so two more pages ahead, there's a bunch of Ultra Magnus dialogue, and now that we see the teams getting divvied up. We see a panel with like the first team, we see a panel with Viper, Baroness, uh, Beachhead, Roblox. We see a panel with, okay. And then they start to get zapped away, right? And Lady J says, uh, I think it's Lady J. It's either, I guess it's Lady J at the bottom of the page, but she no longer has a bare midriff. Anyway, no, that's that's Baroness without glasses. I don't know. Um, okay, so we go, okay. Which page, so let, Which page are you talking about? Uh, the page that starts with, uh, we're looking down at Perceptor and four of the humans and Perceptor says, as far as I can glean from Teletran 3, uh, this is on the right side. Sorry. Uh, someone says no pressure. Yeah. Yeah. On the bot, the final word balloon is no pressure. I can't tell who that is. That looks both like the Baroness. It looks like a miscolored Baroness and also a misdrawn. And I guess it's the Baroness. Uh, I think it, I think it must be, um, cover girl. Cover girl. Okay. Thank you. All right, so I'm going to come back to this page in a minute. So let's go ahead. Okay, pages, eight pages. Lady J is holding an Autobot sigil as she pulls a guy out of a car, out of the red car that then transforms as Hot Rod, right? So we're in the uh, we're in the Beastie Boys sabotage, like music video mm-hmm. shoot in the warehouse. And Lady J is holding what looks like a very small, like, novelty magnet that you would stick to the front of a car, like the, the hood ornament. For an, for an Autobot sigil. And I guess she's going to put it on the top of the car. And uh, and I thought, what's that? What is she doing? And then let me, let's me let go back to that page, which ends with no pressure, <laughs> right? So Perceptor says, by combining that data with a maintenance protocol designed by Ratchet to detect system viruses, I have been able to fashion tracking devices for you, as well as disruption units, which should reboot their systems, allowing them to transform out of vehicle mode. Oh, cool. There are two, uh, I, I take, I take slight issue with your, uh, description of Teletran 3 as a MacGuffin, but we can come back to that. Um, <laughs> two more MacGuffins, yeah. Um, here are, here are two more, um, uh, MacGuffins. 
And I sort of feel like instead of this page where we see like these like dramatist personae panels, it's like, here are the four characters that are going to go to Chicago. Here are the four characters that are going to go to so-and-so. Here are the four or five characters that are going to so-and-so. And then here are the last four characters that are going to go to the future. I feel like someone should be holding one of these devices or Perceptor should be handing one of these devices to someone, right? Like this page it's not a it's not a splash page that wants to be sold for more money, the original art. Um, like this is not a sexy splash page. It's not a fight page. But this page is still definitely drawn more with an eye towards like cool shots of characters just standing there than what the story actually demands. And one of the characters is describing two important and distinct props. A, I would love to know what they look like. B, this is a place for some like funny sort of joke where they're like one is like big because the ratchet designed these (laughs) ratchet designed a disruption unit and a tracking device like how did they know that they would need to be like the size of a coke can it's like maybe (laughs) maybe they're this maybe they're the size of like my backpack because they fit in preceptor's hand not like on his his pinky and then later on in the issue, and at the beginning, I think of issue two, when the the like time teleported Joes and Cobras do use these tracking devices, we like see one from behind, and I'm like, what's that? And I start to think that maybe they're the same thing. That like the front of it is an Autobot symbol, and the back of it has some like uh, tech. So, it, it, you know, my top down at the beginning was that there was too much going on. There were too many characters, and uh, this even though I like issue two and three a lot, um, overall, this doesn't work for me. And with these like three or four sort of story and like uh, staging and directing issues, problems in issue number one, that is my, that is my proof. I had a similar sort of thought process to you, Tim. It's funny sort of going back and, and sort of and being, you know, exactly on the same wavelength there that, I, I was reading this story and, and sort of seeing seeing that sort of Autobot sigil which turned Hot Rod back into the car, and and I was also reading the story and thinking, where, do, how do they know where to go? What what are they doing with this thing to transform them back? And they're going, oh right, that that enormous amount of uh, of text coming from um, from the <laughs> and exposition coming from the Autobots was probably quite important to the story. I think I think I actually need to go that back and read that properly rather than skimming over it because uh i do have a habit uh like probably most that if you see a massive block of text on a page i'll kind of skim it and and that's definitely what happened here and i missed some key plot points uh on the initial reading that i had to go back and actually understand (laughs) and incorporate in my plot briefing to be fair uh a couple pages earlier before lady j puts the little autobot magnet on hot rod on page 30 uh on the, at the bottom snake eyes is holding an autobot sigil and the the guy in yellow with the hat who's like either a pimp or like a, an archetype for a pimp uh the guy with the big hat and the cane and the long coat mm-hmm. um he says hey hey hands off the ride creepy looking turkey i'll cut you uh and my note here, by the way, I appreciate that uh, Tim Seeley draws uh, Snake Eyes here with his head low 
so that his hat brim is casting a shadow on his face, like the flashbacks to Vietnam and the Marvel issues. Mm-hmm. I appreciate this. Thank you. Thank you, Tim Seeley. Good. Um, and like, there's no story reason why when they get clothing that makes them blend in, Snake Eyes would pick era-specific era black clothing and Storm Shadow would pick era-specific white clothing. But that is definitely a cheat or a device that I can get behind. Mm-hmm. Like, yes, help me out. Who are these guys? Okay, so my let's, note here- let's point out Let's point out as well, Storm Shadow is in John Travolta-style Saturday Night Fever white <laughs> disco suit. Right. But my my note here when I read this is- I didn't know if Snake Eyes was putting the Autobot symbol on this car or taking it off. And to be fair, the art does suggest he's putting it on more than he's yanking it off. But the guy behind him does say, hey, hands off the ride, which sort of indicates that he just put his hand on the ride and, I don't know, wiggled a hood ornament and yanked it off. And so this is where... It's like, oh, you got a page full of dialogue or two or three pages full of dialogue where Perceptor is explaining how the mission for the rest of the miniseries is going to go. It's like, well, there's already too much dialogue and things are over-explained. Why not one more dialogue, where he, one more word balloon where he says, put the disruptor units on each car? Or maybe he does. And I, like you, sort of skimmed it yesterday and was like, Ugh. So I also think that the... The the take on this isn't just issue one. This is all the issues. The take on a couple Joes and Cobras getting put in specific times is too broad. I don't mind that it's played for some laughs, right? Like they show up there and uh, you know they get to the seventies, and Lady J says, "Well, I guess the this answers the question of when." And Zartan says, "Ugh," and. Lady J says, what? What's the problem? And Zartan says, listen, you three are young enough. You weren't really involved, but I had to deal with leisure suits and pet rocks for a whole decade. And we sort of see a POV shot because they dis- they appeared into an alley. So now they're looking out of the alley and they see a few people in front of them out on the street, on the sidewalk, walking back and forth. And like someone has bell bottoms, I guess. And like, that's funny, but... I feel like this reference, this joke, this pop culture, like, oh, yeah, the 70s were about leisure suits and pet rocks and the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack and, like, disco. Yeah, but that's sort of like, oh, you remember in the 90s when, like, everyone in America dressed like Kurt Cobain? Like, nope, that's not what happened. It's like, my my dad didn't, and, like, I'm sure your cousin didn't, and, like, in the 90s, my like eighth grade teacher didn't. And then four years later, my 12th grade teacher didn't. And so I feel like the, the, the joke here is actually much more mild, where Lady J says, I guess this answer is when. And Zartan says, ah, I remember this. Like, what, what fashionable days those were. Or something like, yes, it wasn't the best time for fashion. But as a master of disguise, I'll make do. Like something like that. Not just like the broadest possible. It's sort of like, again, I'm like sitting in a library somewhere reading this comic. And like Dan Jolly is like sitting next to me and he's elbowing me. And he's like, 1970s references. <laughs> but, like le- but, leisure suits and pet rocks for a whole decade. Like, nah, too much. My reaction to those two panels was where 
well, I guess this answers the question of when. Does it? Does it though? There's like, <laughs> there's a panel and someone's got bell bottoms on it. Is is that <laughs> is that knocking it directly on the head in a non-subtle way that this is the seventies? You know, realistically, it could be almost any decade, couldn't it? Yeah, I mean, one, I don't pay attention to fashion, but I have started to learn that a lot of fashion is really so a lot of a lot of fashion trails. You know, it's like, you know, in the early '60s, people were still dressing like the late '50s, and mm-hmm. like, you know, like disco's the '70s. Disco's also like '80 and '81 and '82. Like there wasn't a hard edge. There wasn't a line where it stopped. You know, it's like people were like cutting their hair and wearing like fewer bell bottoms or smaller bell bottoms. Right. And so um, I think we are supposed to take many, many cues from this one panel. It's like, okay, there's a, there's a Volkswagen Beetle and whatever light blue car is on the left is supposed to be a very seventies car. And then the blonde woman who may be walking a dog or her pet rock. I don't know. There's a word balloon in front <laughs> <Could> of it. <laughs> um, she has bell bottoms. And then the guy behind her, I think is supposed to have an Afro, but like, he's very small. And like, it is, it is a lot to ask of any artist, Tim Seeley or anyone else. It's like, okay, I'm giving you 1% of the entire page, like 3% of the entire page. That's how much real estate you have to draw two or three or four characters that are going to demonstrate what the fashion of this era is. That's very clear. And it's like, I think this either needs a close up or a couple more panels. And I was, you know, maybe you'd say like dialogue that spells it out. And that's what this slightly overwritten Zartan dialogue is for. A common shortcut for this type of thing is to, for them to be in front of a cinema and you can see what's playing from, right. you know, and it will be Saturday Night Fever or, you know. Right. Or I also feel like I've made this comment once or twice before on Talking Joe where I feel like, Someone is writing and someone is drawing a scene that, as comics, is is not communicating everything that it would if they got to film and edit a scene of a movie or a show where you'd have sound effects and like music. And it's like, do you guys want Saturday Night Fever to be playing in the like? Do you want a Bee Gees song to be playing in the background? And like, do you want a quick montage where we have like a close up of that woman's like de- jangly earrings and then a close up of her bell bottoms <laughs> and then a close up of the guy's afro and then a close up of the Volkswagen because you can do that with with panels but like this isn't a TV show or a movie and so all you've got is dialogue and panels. So that's that's what I'm going to say about issue number 1. You also said um, you also mentioned Zartan being a master of disguise just there, and I found it slightly slightly hilarious that his seventies um, era disguise is like a, I think it's like a flat cap and a sleeveless jacket, but mostly just giant uh, black <laughs> makeup around his eyes. Still, I I mean, wouldn't the joke be if it's the seventies and they're like doing these tropes he should just dress up as a member of kiss Mm. because he's already two percent of the way there all right so okay so issue two i love the stuff with the viper who a is funny and gets to panic when no one else is and b (laughs) gets to be us because he's on page two 
I'm, look, I'm sorry, I'm just having a little freaking trouble with this, okay? I mean, I was alright with the giant transforming robots, I was even handling it when we got zapped to another planet, but time travel? This is insane! I thought, that's fun, and I like that he, he pops up a few more times and gets to do something, and then Roblox or Beachhead or Baroness sort of shuts him down. And issue two worked as a strong unit where it's 22 pages, and... Uh, I'm not going to count, but 16 or 17 or 18 of them get to be this like Tuesday of the miniseries or maybe Wednesday if we're counting the 70s, right? So we're in like 1937 Chicago and almost the whole issue is the mission with Beachhead, Roblox, Baroness and one Viper and also one Autobot and woof, five Stunticons. And when I got to this issue, I thought, okay, issue one really needed to be two or three comic books where we have the mission on Earth, we have them go to Cybertron, and then we have characters zapped through time, and then the first mission to the 70s. And I'm going to jump ahead. By the time I got to issue four, I thought, you know what, this should not have been five issues. Technically, it's five issues worth of comics. I thought, you know what? This shouldn't have been six issues. This actually should have been 12 issues. Ah. And I don't think Devils do want, you know, they didn't want to make that deal because that's more money for the license. That's a lot of wrangling of talent and, and the pipeline. You know, it's like, oh, well, then someone else will have to do issues, you know, seven, eight, nine, because like Siegley's drawing the book and EJ Sue's got to go back to Voltron or something. But there are so many characters, so many locations, uh, several MacGuffins, and so many scenes which are um, crowded and rushed. And this doesn't compare to the Tom Scioli Transformers versus G.I. Joe at all. But you think of other times that the Transformers and G.I. Joe have met, and it's like four issues, you know, Marvel, 1986, 1987. Uh, not enough, but there's a lot more like dialogue and a lot less. Um, there's a lot more compressed storytelling in that because it's like standard 80s Marvel. But I actually think, no, this Dan Jolly miniseries doesn't want to be a five part animated episode script. It wants to be a 12 issue comic where you could do like two issues in the 70s and an issue and a half in Chicago. And uh, and then an issue and a half in uh, in the the wasteland, right? With with uh, with Ratchet, and here is a piece of evidence that I offer. Right, issue two has the Stunticons, none of whom are named. Now, as a big fan of the Stunticons, that made me a little sad because they've got cool names. But also, Dan Jolly made a wise decision because. None of them do anything in particular that's sort of different from each other, right? Motormaster, who's the big one, the truck, who's in the story has dynamite in the back, uh, who's miscolored in this whole issue. That does make me sad. Motormaster is in this story. He's not presented as like an opposite number to Optimus Prime, you know, like good 18-wheeler, bad 18-wheeler, the way that they were in an episode of the show. And they don't transform into Menasaur. They're just referred to. Right? It's like, oh no, there are five Stunicons here. This is a problem. We have to keep them apart and like accomplish this. But if you're not going to name them, if they're not going to 
be distinct. If they're not going to merge into a super robot, all five Stunticons combine to form Menasaur, why have five of them? Just have two. Two of the Stunticons are any two Decepticons who go to 1937 Chicago. But isn't it potentially the peril, the, the threat that they're all there together and if they if things don't go well then then they could combine and that will cause a giant problem for them yeah but doesn't it feel like a not a cheat but it's like do you want to give the audience what it wants if you show me the five stunicons i want to see them combine you know it's like it's like oh do you do you guys remember in the second michael bay live action transformers revenge of the fallen when the Constructicons showed up and they didn't turn into Devastator. Oh wait, they did. That's awesome. <laughs> okay, that movie sucks. I hate it. But like, no, it's exciting when they turned into Devastator. So that that's that's sort of my since we since I spent a lot of time on issue one, uh, that's my comment for issue two. That I I really like. This is when the series becomes itself. When Dan Jolly has or gives himself the time to spend many pages on a smaller group of characters and have them run this mission. It's fun. Uh, you know, the car stuff is fun. And, and you know, the, dis- the disguises and... Yeah, the highlight for me too was this lone Viper who's a literal Star Trek, you know, red shirt, that, that he has got a red shirt. And it's, you know, it's, we're on a mission. It's the Baroness, Roadblock, Beachhead, and some random viper. Okay, why is there the viper there? You know, he's only there so that he can be killed at some point during this mission. And so he's on a, this con- constant state of of panic. And then at the very end of the uh, issue, he comments on it. He's like, they've got back and, hey, I'm still alive. <laughs> okay, so can we jump to issue three now? Yep. Okay, so, all right. When I get to the end of issue two... The back cover to issue two, which teases issue three, has the cover to issue three, cover A, right? So the the image on the back of issue two, one of the covers for issue three, is a giant transformer. I don't know who it is. Okay. He's a Decepticon, but to me, he looks like Nightbeat because of his eyes and his color scheme. Nightbeat is blue and yellow, and... Uh, he investigates mysteries, and I'll stop talking about Nightbeat because this is definitely not <laughs> Nightbeat. Nightbeat becomes a car or a buggy or something, and this this is a building or two buildings or like a subway station or something. Okay, so the, the one of the covers to issue three, there's this giant Decepticon. He's he's yellow and blue, uh, and he's holding at a, at a very strange angle uh, a crumbling Statue of Liberty. And I'm going to give EJ Sue. A break here. I think the reason why this Decepticon is holding the Statue of Liberty so awkwardly is because that's the reference photo that EJ Sue found. And on the cover, this giant transformer has these very strange, like shoulder columns. Like it's like if you know the original Ultra Magnus toy or the, the, the design in the animation, it's like the white stacks coming out of his shoulders, four times as thick, eight times as tall. So it's like, okay, I don't know what he transforms into, but I'm starting to think he transforms into a skyscraper because he's standing on this covered issue three in either the ocean or like sea rise flooded New York City because behind him is the Chrysler Tower. 
like adrift in in this ocean, right? Like Armageddon apocalypse, like sea level rise ocean. Okay. So I don't know who this guy is, but he's really big. He's a bad guy. This is like a terrible future or present for New York. And I thought, oh man, issue three, the stakes are getting high. Okay. But we're not at issue three yet, right? I've just gotten through issue two. It I like it a lot more than issue one. It's got this fun stuff with uh, the Viper and Baroness and Stanacons. And then the final page jumps to another time and another place. And now we see what happens to the third squad of Joes and Cobras who are sent somewhere. And one of them, I can't tell who because he's in silhouette, says, it must be Mindbender, says, ugh, uh, ugh, this feels worse every time it happens. And then Tomax and Zaymot say, oh my God. And then Barbecue says, what are we looking at? And then a little blurb says, next future shock. This is the final panel of issue two. Okay, what do I see them looking at? They are standing on some high up surface and they're looking out over like some, I'm going to guess New York, New York skyscrapers that are like at angles. They're not standing upright. And the ground all around them has like started to swallow them up and sort of frozen. I don't know if it's like dirt or ice. I think it's dirt. But uh, the sort of ground level has come halfway up these uh, skyscrapers. In the distant background are two silhouettes for like Titans, right? The, the, The term came a little later, but Titans are the largest transformers like Metroplex and... Uh, I think Omega Supreme is technically a Titan. And those are the ones that transform into bases and cities, right? And in the in the middle ground, there is what looks like the waist and leg and and sort of feet of the guy who's on the back cover, the guy who's on the cover to issue three, the yellow and blue guy who maybe transforms into a skyscraper. And on this final panel of issue two, where Barbecue says, what are we looking at? We seem to be looking at three of these guys, and one of them is in the foreground, uh, not the foreground, he's in the middle ground, and there are some lines around his legs as if he's like shaking, some some motion lines, and we never see him again. <laughs> so, Mark, wh- wh- I, what, do, what do I do with that? I don't know. I think we have to make our peace with this fact in our own ways, Tim. Okay, so yeah, when so I pick up issue three, and uh, the art has changed, and I, you know I said this in um, I said this in other episodes of of Talking Joe uh, issues where Tim Seeley doesn't draw the issue or doesn't draw all the issue, and Emiliano Santalicia shows up to pencil the issues. I'm really psyched because I think he's stronger technically at the human figure at acting at compositions even though this issue is going off of tim seeley's layouts so the first panel of issue three picks up a moment later right where these five joes and mm-hmm. cobras barbecue saying i i don't get it i thought we were supposed to go to earth and mind mentor says it's the future and in that second panel we're looking at buildings like skyscrapers and some of them are like leaning against each other and there are some sweeps who's this futuristic decepticon like flying through the air and then they meet the like mad max futuristic dreadnoughts who have uh, wreck gar 
uh, motorcycles. That's that's a guy's name, Rekgar. It's Eric Idle off, off of Transformers the movie. Uh, yes, not in the show, just the movie, but yes. So this is when I started to think, you know, because there's this, we think maybe typo at the end of issue three, we're on the news checklist page. It refers to the next month, issue four, and the next, next month, issue five. And I started to think several things. One, am I missing an issue? <laughs> I, I'm not saying that as a joke. For a second, I thought like, oh, did I read this out of order? So, you know, you could grab a miniseries and by accident, you read one, three, two, four. Ironically, Barbecue's first line of the issue. I, I, don't, I don't get it, Tim's thought also when he starts reading this issue. Right. This is when I started to think, maybe Blaylock said to Dan Jolly, Oh, oh! now that you've started writing this, you have to change this. Or, hey, we were going to do five issues, now we're going to do four. Or there was some, or Hasbro said, you have to change something. And Devil's Due made the best, it, the best it could of a tough situation. Or I thought, maybe this will get explained in the next issue. But by the end of issue three, I thought... <sighs> What is is this like, you know, I sort of I turn to the middle and I look at the staples. They're not technically staples, but I'll call them staples. Like, did 20 pages fall out of my comic? Am I only reading half the issue by accident? Um, Because there have already been these small things like they have these disruptors and these trackers that aren't really visually introduced or differentiated. And, you know, issue one was jam packed with like Earth and then Cybertron and then a fight and then the zapping and then the first mission. And then issue two was was good and sort of breathed. And then issue three, I thought, okay, well, the actual mission that's happening here, I like, and and the art is an improvement. And, you know, seeing Duke as a, he's no longer a believer. He's a doubter. He's he's not a bad guy, but he's, 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 he's so bitter. He like won't send them back into the time stream. That's fun and upsetting. And, and so as I, I turn the page and, you know, the dreadnoughts are helping them sneak into the city and I'm like, okay, now they're going to meet this giant skyscraper transformer titan. It's like, oh, oh, they're, they're the Insecticons. Okay, okay. So we're going to get through the Insecticons. And I turn the page. Okay, now we're going to meet the giant skyscraper transformer. Oh, oh, no, no, no. It's, it's Ravage. It's a bunch of Ravages, the, the Jaguar cassette who um, lives inside Soundwave. Like, okay, now we're going to meet, oh, oh, oh it's, it's Ratchet. Ratchet's sort of the last Autobot freedom fighter. Oh, what an interesting wrinkle. He showed up two years ago. So Jolly is introducing now an in, an interesting, um, uh, what's the word? Sort of um, inconsistency, a, a good one, not not a mistake or a lazy one. Where in the two previous missions, the Joes and Cobras showed up pretty soon after the Transformers, just long enough for them uh-huh. to be like stolen, basically as cars by random bad guys and or Beastie Boys. And here they showed up <laughs> two years after Ratchet. And he's become a true believer, a freedom fighter, the last freedom fighter. He's he's sort of like dented and charred and scratched. And uh, and I have a note here that um, uh, in issue three, uh, this this reference is only going to work for a minority of our of our listeners. But um, page sixteen, when uh, when Ratchet takes out a reflector uh, for one page, this comic just becomes Transformers Generation Two. Uh, which is to say that comic was much um, darker and grittier than the original Marvel Transformers. A lot more black ink, a lot more gritted teeth, a lot more 
uh, Transformers dying and getting shot and like having their sort of robot guts hanging out of little holes and like oil spilling out. And uh, I thought, oh, here's this one page where like in the future, Ratchet takes out this bad guy. So what do you make of issue three, Mark? Yeah, it's it's fine. I think, you know, dystopian futures are always interesting to, to see. Quite in, enjoyed it. Not a huge amount extra to see. I mean, it's, yeah, it's sort of uh, just interesting to see some of that that takes on the, the dreadnoughts, uh, the take on, on Duke. And yeah, it all makes, all makes sense. There, there's probably some, something happening behind the scenes between uh, editorially between last page of issue two and the first page of, you know, beyond that, it's, it's fine. I was doing some Googling in the background and learning about Titan Transformers. And it looks like pretty much the, the only contender that I can see is a uh, Decepticon called Metro Titan. Yeah, but the but these but these aren't his colors. But but also, uh, you know, we're on a, in a different continuity as well, where all of the Transformers are looking slightly different to the way they did look. Yeah, I mean, there's 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 not a huge amount in uh, of similarities to to the the same design, apart from kind of. You know those ear cones and the shoulder turrets um, and the size, but may- maybe that's where they were going. Yeah, uh, for for uh, for novice Transformers fans, uh, if you know who Metroplex is, Metro Titan is the Metroplex toy released in Japan with different colors, and more recently in America in the comics, Metro Titan was introduced as a as a different character. As this was causing us so much confusion, I actually asked EJ Sue if he remembered who that massive transformer on the cover was supposed to be. So the giant Decepticon on the cover of issue three was never supposed to be anything more than a generic city bot that kind of step on everything in a future Earth when Decepticon took control. It was supposed to be these overpowering force that it looks like nobody could ever overcome. At the end of the script on issue two, describe a world where everything was in ruin and these gigantic robots would just roam the earth and, you know, just step on everything and destroy everything. And we just took a step further and put him on the cover of issue three. Here's, here's something else uh, which happens in this issue which I've, I find interesting and also I wish could be expanded. And if this were six issues or 12 issues, I believe this, this scene would have. Um, Tomax and Zamot grasp each other's wrists and because they have some of the Cybertronian tech in them absorbed from the first miniseries, they can, they can fire a weapon together sort of from their, from their hands. And before they get to use it on Shockwave, he, and one of his hands is a laser, vaporizes one of them. And the other screams, Ah! Ah, no! And then in the next panel, uh, he's, he's pretty small, but he's saying, No! And he's on his, he's on his knees looking down next to a, a smoking pile of ash. Tomex and Zamot are really fun, wonderful, colorful characters from G.I. Joe animation, from... Uh, season two and the animated movie 
uh, also, also, oh, excuse me, also season one, right? And uh, like, oh, Red Rocket's glare, oh man, oh man. And uh, Larry Hama doesn't use them much at all in the Marvel yeah. comic or the IDW comic. And when they show up in the Devil's Due comic, that that's something that I like, uh, particularly if they act and talk a little bit like the cartoon in the show and in the toy. This notion is that they're they're psychically linked. If one if one is hurt, the other feels it, which is silly and very cool. And that's borne out in the animation. So this scene where one of them dies, we have never seen this uh, in the comics, certainly not in the animation as of 2004. And it's given one panel to happen and two panels for a reaction. And I think we see in the next issue, like the one survivor sort of looking a little adrift in the background of one panel. Uh, most event miniseries at Marvel and DC and most intercompany crossovers, you know, like Superman, Spider-Man from the 70s or JLA Avengers from, what was that, 1997? There's rarely time in a big event miniseries or an intercompany crossover for, to my mind, enough or the right sort of emotional beats. So in a four-issue miniseries like G.I. Joe versus Transformers 2, I, I need some moments. I need things to slow down. And like issue two and much of issue three do slow down for those two missions. You know, the Baroness and Beachhead's dialogue with the Viper and this thing in issue two, which feels very much out of the cartoon where they're at a jazz club and Roadblock just knows how to play uh, trombone. Uh, trumpet was it trumpet trumpet thank you right it's like what's the one thing we know about roadblock outside of his military career he's a gourmet chef does dan jolly use that no is that okay yes <laughs> no actually yes i don't need him to do the one thing that that he does and that he's done before does this come out of nowhere yes would the cartoon have done that absolutely and that's why i'm okay with it and the panel before it, where the two other jazz performers, one says, we ain't even heard him play. Are you, uh, you going to argue with the man? No, I ain't either. And then there's a panel where the band starts to play and there are no sound effects with musical notes, but okay. And like the Baroness walks off. This is an issue two. Yep. I really need a little more with Tomax and Zamot. And if this was 12 issues, or if each of these missions was about finding one Transformer, not five or six. It's like, okay, we're going to find Optimus Prime and the Stunticons. It's like, oh man. It's like, no, the reason why you'd have Optimus Prime and the Stunticons is so that Optimus Prime and the Stunticons can fight. Otherwise, if it was just one Decepticon or just Optimus Prime, it could be interesting enough to just try and sort of peel him away from the human who's got him. Or you could have a chase scene with Optimus Prime and one Stunticon, right? But it's like, Every I keep coming back to this note, but sort of almost half of the scenes in this entire miniseries have like the maximum number of characters and half of the scenes have a sort of medium and proper amount of characters, but no scenes have sort of the minimum number of characters. And the fewer characters, the more you can slow down and have a character do something else or have some uh, dialogue. So that is my very long plea for another couple of panels of Tomax or Zamot, I'm not sure who survived, reacting. Hey, 
so so what do you think then tim of the the grand finale and and how this all wraps up in issue four uh i was really distracted in issue four uh the art looks rushed and i do like val staples coloring separate from this comic uh i think his palette is so different for this final issue it's quite distracting the the fight that happens um sort of around teletran 3 in cybertron like all the backgrounds are really bright and the sky is like light purple and cybertron has no atmosphere the sky in cybertron day or night is just sort of the the black of space with white uh stars so sorry uh that's wrong and if it's not if it's not wrong it's it just feels inconsistent from the previous issues um i thought the dinobot reveal was really fun uh and i will point out that i had not seen the cover of issue four that has dinobots on it uh that is not that is not an ad at the end of issue three i don't have that cover for issue four i have i have cover b and so I had, I had forgotten halfway through issue four that there was one last group of Joes and Cobras who'd gone somewhere. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so when all of a sudden Lady J pushes a button and there's a big like lightning bolt explosion and some Joes come out of it and it's Roadblock? Roadblock, Dusty, Someone, and Shipwreck. And there are like the smallest indications on this one panel that they've been somewhere sort of you know their clothes are torn and they've got dusty has like animal teeth sort of as a necklace right and uh roblox is holding a a spear like a like a stone age type spear like a wooden staff with like you know stone tied to it with string and then and he says man oh man you will not believe where we've been and then there's this very awkwardly composed (laughs) splash page of the Dinobots coming out of uh, the like time portal. Um, that, with a- group, that group of characters, by the way, I just flicked back to issue uh, one to see who that who was in that group, and it looks to be Shipwreck, Gung Ho, Dusty, and another random Viper. Okay, so I thought I thought two things that conflicted at the same time. I thought, oh, how fun! Dan Jolly is really efficiently, and as a surprise bringing back in the final group of characters that their mission was a success and oh man it's 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 sort of underexplained i'm gonna have to make a little leap here dusty doesn't say we went to prehistory dusty says you won't believe where we've been and there are these two visual cues in their costumes and then i see dinosaurs oh they didn't become 1930s cars or 1970s cars they became dinosaurs i thought Mm -hmm. that's really fun and then i thought Wait a minute, this is happening halfway through the final issue. Did that did that mission, did that scene, did that like first half of part five of the animated miniseries want to be a, a bigger story that we could actually sink our teeth into? I don't know. I think I like it as a surprise that you don't actually see the story, you just see the ramifications of the the story. It happening off panel is it it's okay with me because if you were to explain it it would lose the bit of the the fun of the the reveal that all of these dinobots appear out of nowhere right i do have a question for you issue four um on pages two and three uh storm shadow his his jacket is torn 
on his back and his back is mm. scuffed up and it looks maybe like it's smoking. Mm. Is that something that just happened in the in the fight? Does that happen at the end of issue three off panel when when Ratchet has teleported back to where Shockwave is on by Teletran three? I think this is something that has happened off panel. I think the the suggestion is that Storm Shadow has been on a reconnaissance mission. Uh, all of these other Joes have returned from their mission, are sort of hiding away. He's been off on a mission to to try and find out some stuff. And yeah, he comes back and he finds the information they need. Okay. Well, so, you know, I'm I'm often asking for more things to be shown and not told. And I I like the attempt here that, you know, some story has happened between the previous issue and the current one. I often say how much I like that uh, in Larry Hama G.I. Joe comics, right? One of my favorite examples is the first page of issue 97, which definitely doesn't pick up, you know, an hour or a day after the end of the Snake Eyes trilogy in issue 96. It's like, no, we're just into the next mission and some other Joes are pinned down behind a car getting shot at. And I think that's the first page of 97. So I appreciate that. And, you know, there is a little bit in the dialogue here where Storm Shadow says, everyone shut up and listen, I have what we need. I managed to stay hidden for a few extra seconds. Okay. And then CoverGirl does point it out. She says, you're back. But that um, sort of injury is so specific. I think it actually yeah. asks more questions than it dramatically su- suggests. I think I think I, I still have more questions. It's like it, it, it's not so literal that I need to know which transformer used what weapon to do that to Storm Shadow. But that is so specific. Again, after the whole thing where the guy who is a building appears but doesn't appear, I saw this page and I thought, wait, did I miss a scene or an issue? Yeah. yeah like, because yeah. it's not like he's just running and he's panting and he's tired and he's sweaty or like he has a sword, but it's like broken in half. I mean, I might say the same thing if his sword was broken enough. Although, you know, maybe <laughs> fighting alien robots, your sword breaks in half. But it's like, no, what is, was it a laser beam? You know, did like a door close right behind him? And like, did someone have uh, like a heat ray or fire breath? And then Dan Jolly or Tim Seeley, just in his layouts, creates a mini narrative out of CoverGirl and Storm Shadow because she, along with everyone else, sees him on this first uh, splash page. It's page two of the final issue. Seeley very awkwardly crops uh, half of Roadblock's head behind a pipe. Uh, weird. And then on the next panel, right... CoverGirl leans in and she says, and her her dialogue is a little smaller and the second word's in italic. She says, you're back. And her hands are out. And then uh, several pages later, after Lady J and Roadblock have pushed the button and the Dinobots have shown up, the next day Optimus Prime is sort of explaining that the story is now over and everyone can go home. And someone says off panel, the debt's Hardly one-sided Prime. Without the Autobots' help, Shockwave wouldn't have just dominated Earth. He'd have demolished it. And there's a there's a beat where this panel is actually some Joe off-screen is responding to Optimus Prime. But what we see actually are CoverGirl and Storm Shadow exchanging looks, and mm. that's really nice. Maybe uh, Tim Seeley. I think he writes the third crossover. Yep. 
Maybe he's setting up something for the future because he knows what the final page of this issue is. And maybe he's going to write, he knows he's going to write the third one. Maybe he's just adding a little bit of inter-character business, some acting, some uh, stuff that doesn't hinge on the dialogue because you don't actually need this panel to be Stalker or whoever like talking back to Optimus Prime. Um, So I like it. But at the same time, (laughs) because... Storm Shadow has this question mark about his mission and his costume and his injury. As much as I like this panel, I feel like this panel is asking more questions than it's answering. Like, mm. oh, I guess they like each other now. Or I guess she appreciates his bravery and he appreciates her concern. And like, if it wasn't there, this, these three beats of her seeing him saying you're back and then this exchange, this, this visual exchange. If this weren't there, yes, this four issue miniseries would be a little less rich for it. But there's a weight to adding this three beat interaction that doesn't come from anywhere and doesn't go anywhere. And then uh, at the end of the story, I like this idea that Cobra Commander has sort of the final word because Starscream is left, Shockwave is angry at him or disappointed. He's good. Starkwave is going to let Starscream sort of stay. He's not going to be punished. He's welcome back into the ranks. Starscream is embarrassed because he was, you know, captive of Cobra on Earth. So this sort of closes a loop what is about to happen from the first miniseries. And so then this recording plays from within Starscream, which is Cobra Commander saying that uh, Starscream is terrible and he's filled with explosives. And there's this... Hmm wordless panel of shockwave lunging towards uh starscream either to attack him or to like defuse the bomb and then yep. there's this exterior shot it's two-thirds of the page uh of this building from the outside exploding and there's this like light purple sky behind it sorry val staples that's not what cybertron looks like but because the word balloon placement where Cobra Commander finishes explaining, but it's nothing, uh, but it's nothing the 45 pounds of plastic explosive I lined his housing with won't fix. And you think, damn, Cobra Commander has the last word. He killed Starscream and it turns out Shockwave. Awesome. But we read left to right. So the explosion happens, but then the recording finishes. Wouldn't the recording mm-hmm. have blown up in the explosion too? Yeah, I'll forgive it. I'll forgive it. it okay. I, I get what you're saying, Tim. Right. I, I get what you're saying. Makes perfect sense, <laughs> your complaint. But, but you know, so I can see it as sort of like a cinematic effect as well, that sometimes, you know, that, that maybe there'll be that element of it's not just possibly the, re- you know, recording that you're hearing, but maybe the person making the recording, you know, I'll, I'll allow it. In a flashback, it's like a week ago when Cobra Commander was speaking into a microphone. Yeah. Yes, or the the voice or the voice continues in sort of an echoey, like technically it exploded, but for the benefit yeah. of the audience, we're going to play the audio a few seconds past the explosion. Sure, but yeah. again, the two things you just described are film, not comics. Yeah, your complaint would be resolved if the 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 bubble was top left or something along those lines. And <laughs> and if there was a a long hyphen, a dash interrupting the final word of it because it does get cut off in the explosion yeah we might have mentioned this on the previous crossover but but also the interplay of starscream and cobra commander set in a somewhat cartoon version of the the universe 
uh, has got a little bit of uh, something that tickles me with with the kind of the two voices of Starscream and Cobra Commander talking to one another in a uh, in an animated universe, uh, both uh, both voiced by the same person. All right, so I've spent a lot of time on uh, issue four and some things that um, don't work for me. But what? How does how does issue four feel to you? And might you focus on the final two pages as well? Uh, yeah, the result. You know, the resolve is good. It sort of ties it all up. I like I like the surprise of the Dinobots and and the way that that kind of explains their origins. That they time traveled a little bit too far and and you know ended up being dinosaurs rather than the the standard cars and whatnot. So uh, yeah, it's, I think it's a fun storytelling device. The ends page with Doctor Mindbender being taken to some sort of secretive base by again secretive people in dark suits and being introduced to uh, Cobra La, was it Pythona and Nemesis Enforcer in the background, and they're they're holding these sort of Unicron artifacts. This like Nemesis and Fortress got kind of a sort of statue of Unicorn over the top of his head. There's some sort of shield or plate or something that the the guards are carrying, and there's bugs and other things sort of scattered about. It's um it's intriguing, and and I believe this is the first comic appearance of Cobra La at uh, this point. Mm. So yeah, it's it's interesting that they leave it on a bit of a uh, mystery, something that can lead somewhere else as well. I think that's uh, an interesting device. I am not interested, theoretically, in Cobra Law appearing in comics. There is that issue of G.I. Joe that was packed in with two action figures that Larry Hama writes, uh, Falcon and Nemesis Enforcer, uh, fighting. But... This is a very good place to have Cobra Law in a either animated inspired G.I. Joe comic or a separate pocket continuity where they're they're fighting alien robots. And, you know, looking at Tim Seeley's oeuvre and knowing he's uh, our age or about our age, you know, he's definitely a kid who likes the 80s. He actually pitched a book to an artist that I know, which was like sort of a He-Man pastiche uh, many years ago that I don't think ever happened. But even then, I thought, like, oh, this guy had drawn G.I. Joe, and you know, he'd written the third and or fourth Joe Transformers crossovers, and you know, like Hack Slash is a take on an '80s concept. The, you know, the Final Girl. If you don't know what Hack Slash is, that's that's Tim Seeley's creator-owned. Uh, comic that he that he writes and sometimes draws so it's actually really fun and funny to see cobra law here and sort of delightful like yeah man you've got this particular take on gi joe where they've now interacted with alien robots they have that technology although maybe not after the end of this miniseries they have time traveled and cobra law is so zany it sort of makes more sense in G.I. Joe when there's also Cybertron. Like, you know, G.I. Joe, the movie, the animated one from 87, you know, it like starts to peel the layers back and your comfort level with that much like weird sci-fi, like, oh yeah, it's the 40,000 year old snake man. Yeah. <laughs> your mileage may vary, 
Um, I think G.I. Joe the movie's written well enough that I I buy it, even if if I, you know if I, I think about it, I, I maybe don't want it to be in G.I. Joe. But you know, the show is always much more uh, sci-fi and fantasy than the comic. Um, the these these two props, the I think it's supposed to be stone, uh, the way that it's drawn. Although the way that it's colored, it, it doesn't quite look like uh, stone. But Nemesis Enforcer is holding. Uh, the sort of stone Unicron uh, sculpture and its proportions, the fact that it's stone and then the styling on the shield that the Royal Guard is holding to me suggest Mesoamerica, that uh-huh. these are mm-hmm. that these are artifacts from, you know, a, a part of, you know, what is now North America and Central America, as opposed to, uh, I mean, this page actually has a lot of information, this final page, that it's not like the Himalayas necessarily, or like Cybertronian. It's like, no, this feels like a particular thing. And uh, even down to the, the beetles coming out of the the sort of uh, box that I guess the shield was in. Uh, I, think, I think it's really funny that in addition to the stone statue, which has particular proportions where the body is a little small and the head's a little big and the shield, um, one of the Royal Guard is, is also just holding a box of files. Mm. Like, like okay i think that's fine i think that's fair i think when you like call it out it's silly and what you sort of want is these weird sci-fi characters to be holding interesting artifacts and there to be boxes of files on the shelving around them uh anyway i do like this page and i don't i don't love it when a miniseries wraps up and then the final page teases the next miniseries and you know, like every Marvel event. And then DC finally learned this five years ago. Uh, now DC event, it's like, you know, the event miniseries, its final couple of pages just set up the next one distinctly. And so if you read it at the time, you immediately think like, oh, well, I, as much as I enjoy that ending or don't, like here's the publisher sort of hitting me in the face. It's like, you got you to buy the next thing, sucker. Or if you reread it many years later, if you give, you know, the book, the collection as a gift to someone, you know, what? Anyway, so uh, congratulations, De- Devil Zoo. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to read G.I. Joe versus Transformers 3. <laughs> and and strangely enough, I think G.I. Joe versus Transformers 3 doesn't touch on that storyline at all. It's all about a, um, a, a Serpentor storyline. But... Um, I think I've read. Think I've read does. four. I have read four. I read. I'll. I'll. I'll jump ahead several episodes of our podcast, even though I had given up on Devils Do when Black Horizon came out. GI Joe versus Transformers Four. I did buy it and read it at the time because Andrew Wildman drew it, and that was cool. Okay, and that is that is where we see the these characters uh, next. We spoke to Tim Seeley recently and asked him about that Cobra cameo. Because originally the cameo that we had in two of Cobra was like just a joke. Because Hasbro's like, you don't use them. They're <laughs> are sort of ashamed of them. We don't want to use them. <laughs> so it was just like a joke. Short but sweet. Back to Mark and Tim Finn. I wanted to return to something that you had mentioned earlier on, which was that you didn't le- like um, my reference to Teletran 3 as a MacGuffin. Um, I have two <laughs> two questions. One, why why is that? And and two, is Teletran three? Um, is it is it something that exists already, or is it a brand new invention for this comic? It's one of those 
comic book extensions of something already existing. The computer in the original Transformers cartoon, that's their ship crash lands on Earth and they take on human forms. And the computer, they're always standing around. The computer that they talk to that says like, alert, Decepticon activity, detected at the Science Museum, uh, voiced by Casey Kasem. That's Teletran 1. That is the name of their computer. And the episodes of the Transformers cartoon that take place after the animated movie, uh, season 3, that has Teletran 2, uh, who I think was voiced by, I think, Frank Welker. I think that's, um, I think Casey Kasem had left the show in protest for a, uh, a character that had a name that was uh, an offensive joke. I don't know if if any other comics or animation have had up and have up until this point in 2004 named any kind of successor or alternate version of an Autobot computer Teletran 3, but that's what this is. That's either Dan Jolly took a swing and guessed right or, you know, Blaylock or Seeley made a suggestion. Um so yes, in this story it does act like a MacGuffin, but it is enough of a Transformers prop or character that I think of it as a little more elevated than a MacGuffin. Uh, the other reason why my eyes go to that name Teletran 3 immediately in issue number one is my first Error Detected. Error Detected. Error Detected. No prize incoming. Uh, Teletran is spelled incorrectly in this comic. I forgive it because in sort of half of all Transformers uh, lettering and text, it's spelled wrong. The actual spelling, it's a, it's a double A in the second half of the word. T-E-L-E, Tela, and then Tran is T-R-A-A-N. That's, that's canon. Uh-huh. I had a couple, well, I had one real <laughs> sort of slightly tongue-in-cheek error detected, and that is issue one, page two, the first appearance of the Dreadnoughts, and they their dialogue is, Oh, ho, ho, you've just made a blue, mate. Land into a brick, you have. Tear them apart. I was like, <laughs> what language are you speaking? Are you meant to be Cockneys? Is, is that... English or Australian, I have no idea what, what you're trying to do there. God blimey, governor, mate, no mistake. I don't know. Um, I, I think I think this might call for a, a, f- a very specific follow-up email to Dan Jolly. <laughs> this is the one this is the one question. Not not where the city titan went, but uh what's up with his dialogue? <laughs> And the uh, and then then the subsequent one was was uh, they then sort of released their sort of Cybertronian um, cybernetics. Ripper's got a sort of bayonet, giant ripping hands. Buzzer's got a chainsaw hand. Torch's got torch hands, and um, Ripper jumps at Scarlet and says, "Been waiting to get my hands on you, lassie." Um, I think you'll find Ripper. That is, you've been waiting to get your hand on Scarlet because you only have one. <laughs> I I wish there was a panel between these two panels you've just referred to. The one where they first show up and they have these two lines of dialogue that you 
that you think are funny and, and fun, funny and weird and uh they look normal and uh ripper is just making a fist and pointing with his other hand and then the next panel where all of a sudden it, it's sort of not clear if ripper has like taken his hand off and put an attachment on like a cobra bat where he now has a blade or if like uh like claw ulysses claw in the black panther movie if his hand like split in half and like folded back mm-hmm. and a like blade stuck out isn't it? of his <laughs> of his wrist yeah and uh you know like in that second panel we see torch and his his whole from his fingertips down to his elbows are like metal gauntlets with flame coming out of the fingertips. In the previous panel, we just see his head and shoulders. So, are his hands already metal, or is that part of the transformation? And th- this is this is a nitpick, and you'd need like two extra panels or like an inset panel. But you know, like it's sort of like if in one panel you have Optimus Prime, and then the next panel you have an eighteen wheeler. I do want to see sort of two or three drawings, whether it's sort of colored in sort of fuzzy translucently or some inset panels where he is mid transformation because that's so cool and fun and on the cartoon, particularly with the sound effect. So like the, the surprise of this scene and when Tomax and Zaymot do it, I, I do, I do want a little more sort of space given to, this thing that could only happen in this miniseries. Because it's not just like, I have a machine gun, and then in the next panel, it is firing. Or I'm like holding a clip, and in the next panel, I've loaded the clip. I've just, I've just Googled, actually, it's London to a brick, just to, just to double check. <laughs> and apparently, apparently it is a colloquialism that occurs in Australia, I guess, where the dreadnoughts uh, hang about. Uh, so it's when something is assured or certain. It's London to a brick that Kevin's going to be late again, i.e. Kevin is always late. Um, so maybe I'm being a bit too hard on him. I hope you will send a second email to Dan Jolly. Rescinding, <laughs> Apologizing. rescinding the question of your first one and now offering up as a replacement question from my co-host Tim. What's up with that building guy? Um, uh, I have an error detected in issue number two. Okay. On page 10, the Cobra Viper on panel four uh, suddenly has Beachhead's shoulder pads. He doesn't have his actual sleeves, his sort of rolled up sleeves, like a normal shoulder. Previously and after every other panel that um, this Viper uh, appears in in this issue, even on this very page, when he's talking to Roblox at the top, uh, he just has his normal rolled up sleeves on his shoulders, uh, blue, blue fabric. Uh, but there's this one panel where he's got uh, uh, gray metal shoulder pads, just like. Actually, you know what? <laughs> Since this is like one of the animated miniseries, um, the, the animated miniseries, uh, as the animation went along for both G.I. Joe and Transformers, uh, there started to be a lot of animation mistakes where... In regular episodes and in the later miniseries where like someone would move and the 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 movement is not smooth or there's a color pop like you know someone's shirt is like the wrong color for a half a second yeah isn't there like a, fa- a famous scene where cobra commander switches between having uh the helmet and the hood um i don't remember specifically but assuredly yes or like 
someone's mouth moves and like the wrong voice comes out because the animators made a mistake and there wasn't time for the producers in Los Angeles to request a fix. Uh, so this this little uh, glitch here uh, where Tim Seeley draws the wrong shoulder pads on the Viper, technically it's an error detected, but I like it. It feels mm-hmm. it feels in keeping. It's like, oh yeah, one shot in that episode. Yeah, someone's costume's just a little off because it's hard to draw all these characters. Uh, and, you know, like the other guys drawing half the characters too. In the regular show, we've got a little jingle that is a Larry Hammer colloquialism. And I'm not going to make a new jingle for, for just this uh, episode, but uh, I'll put it on the spot. Let's stop Tim's cynicism. It's time for a Dan Jolly colloquialism. Um, so my colloquialism from Dan Jolly is when Baroness says that she slipped Tommy Fingers a Mickey. So a Mickey Finn, Mickey, is a drugged alcoholic drink given to someone without them knowing. It's named for a late 19th century bartender and pickpocket who was notorious for drugging people's drinks. So giving someone a Mickey Flynn is sometimes called slipping a Mickey. When it's uh, a, a bad guy doing it to an even worse bad guy, uh, narratively, this seems like a positive thing. Uh, but <laughs> nowadays in culture, this is only a bad thing. You, mm-hmm. you cannot spike people's drinks. Um, I have two I spies. I spy with my little eye. I've, I've slipped mine in as we've gone along. So uh, go for it, Tim. Um, I spy in issue one, uh, there's a reference to hanging chads. Mm-hmm. It's that Viper who's, who's dangling from, um, some equipment when the snake eyes robot is holding him up. And, uh, uh, that, that refers to, uh, the, uh, the voting fiasco in Florida. And, uh, also in issue one, and I think again, in issue four, uh, my I spy is that Optimus Prime on Cybertron um, he's not in his earth mode where he's got two windshields for his chest. Uh, he is, he's in a specific Cybertronian mode uh, from a Dreamwave comic, how he appeared in the War Within miniseries designed and drawn by Don Figueroa. Um, when Dreamwave was making Transformers comics, uh, most of them were in the present day and there were uh, two miniseries. The third one was started and never finished where Dreamwave brought Simon Furman, who'd written the original Marvel uh, Transformers comics, uh, in to tell some stories in, of the past on Cybertron. And it's on the cover to even, on the covered issue one, Optimus Prime has this very specific sort of car chassis uh, as a chest, which is his sort of pre-Earth truck Cybertronian mode. And EJ Sue is drawing it here in this miniseries. Very good. Do we do Yo Joeage? Yo Jo Cola, not grape soda. It's Yo Joeage time. I'll go first. I think I'll give it this like. Uh, I'll give it a seven. Why not? I, I quite enjoyed it. It was it was fun. I enjoyed it a lot more than I thought I would. With all of the caveats that I said at the beginning about not really generally enjoying Transformers stories, 
I think this is more of a G.I. Joe story than it is a Transformers story for the most part. As you say, like some of the Transformers are reduced to bit parts, not even named in the in the background and so on. I thought it was fun. It zipped along some, you know, inventive ideas whenever they're sort of creating these Transformers for, for the you know historical scene that they're in. They're doing like a little re- redesign. So there's a lot of extra work involved in redesigning the, the characters for their various appearances. But particularly, I think the, I really enjoyed the art. I think the approach that they took with the um, backgrounds and the colours um, was really sympathetic to Tim Seeley's style. And, and I think it you know, made him look as, as good as we've seen his, his art across the, the issues so far. Uh, and yeah, wraps up nicely so um yeah all in all not a regrettable read and uh, a lot of fun to be had i'm going to give this a four Oof. um i don't i don't think it works it's fun and it's got a lot of great scenes and issue two is a fun i would rank issue two much higher i'd give that a, a six uh, i also like issue three but there are so many story problems and, and it is so crowded and I see so many sort of of the narrative scenes and threads getting um, compressed or squeezed out that um, this needed to be simpler or much longer. But uh, you make a great point. We should, at the beginning of the episode, we should have definitely pointed out that all these Transformers have different designs for the robots they change into uh, in these uh, his, historical scenes and uh, that's certainly EJ Sue doing that design work I think that's yep. a safe guess and the process by which this book was drawn is super fun both sharing the art duties and also mm-hmm. painting the backgrounds uh, issue 4B the cover is so great uh, I'm I'm sort of tempted to just keep that comic in I, I have this I have this <laughs> one short box with just comics that I keep just for the covers because they're so awesome. Uh, I just pull them out sometimes and look at them. And uh, this is a contender, although I, I don't want to break up this set, which I would sell or give to someone now that I've read it for the show. But uh, I, I do want to recognize that even under the best circumstances, whether it's six issues or, or 12 issues, uh, writing a crossover like this is a, is a big challenge. Yeah. A lot of, you know, it's not just Joes and Cobras and Auto- Autobots and Decepticons. It's also Autobot and Decepticon alternate modes. And, you know, we didn't even have G.I. Joe vehicles in this in this story. No. Um, so. Cool. Um, so I think we are done with tr- G.I. Joe versus the Transformers Volume 2. Next time on Talking Joe Disavowed, we will continue our look at the Brandon Joa era of G.I. Joe with Master and Apprentice Series 2. Is that acceptable, Tim? Yes. <laughs> and I and I know I know it's four issues. I'm not mistakenly thinking uh, that it's five or six. I know it's four. So that is your reading homework, listeners. And in the meantime, we will be talking to some special guests. We'll be looking at G.I. Joe original art in some sketchbook special shows and much, much more. Um, Tim, where can people find you when you are not talking to me about G.I. Joe? Video essays on TV and film at our YouTube page, Atomic Abe 
Productions. My brick and mortar comic book store is Hub Comics in Somerville, Massachusetts, and I write about G.I. Joe at a realamericanbook.com. Good. Uh, you can find out more about Talking Joe at the usual places. Talkingjoe.co.uk is the website with links to all of those places. Uh, we've got the podcast, which you are listening to right now. We are on Facebook. We're on Twitter. We're on Instagram. Uh, we're on email. We're on, we've got a thing where you can leave us voicemails. Uh, we're also on Patreon, patreon.com, Talking Joe. A big thanks to our backers, Richard, Sam, Jay, Bill, Christopher, Justin, Rob, and Brian, who are getting early access to episodes as well as exclusive content. Um, I think I might even stick uh, the G.I. Joe vs. Transformers preview uh, arts on, on this there's some, uh, some interesting things there and finally i think that is us done but remember that nobody beats talking joe an international podcast with a guy from england a guy from america and a bunch of robots from space see you next time laters